It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. We've all heard of big high-profile hacks, like Stuxnet, which basically took out the Iranian nuclear program. An Iranian facility has been targeted for cyber attack, the second time it's happened in less than a year. That from the official in charge of defending Iran's nuclear sites. Or when Seth Rogen's stoner comedy made North Korea really, really pissed off. Sony Pictures Entertainment is reeling from what may be the biggest and most devastating computer hacking in Hollywood's history. Key to all these hacks is malware or software specifically and intentionally designed to damage computer systems. But one thing some people ask is, what is it exactly? Well, ultimately, just some lines of code. On this week's Cyber, we have someone who researches it for a living. Malware researcher Tarek Sala of Domain Tools. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. All right, so Tarek, Tell me, because we know, but I think, you know, uh, a lot of people in the world kind of understand the word, but what exactly is malware? Yeah, and that's a good question. So malware is malicious software, but it's the same as your normal software, but the intent is typically hidden from you and the motives are usually malicious in nature. So its purpose is to either really steal your personal information um, or have your computer be under the control of an attacker at that point. This malware gets into a computer and locks down all the files, all the photos you care about, the documents, Microsoft Word files. If you're a college student, it's your essay. If it's a business like this, a hospital, it's medical records. It locks that down, and then hackers can say, I'm not going to unlock that until you give me money. And it's really common not only to have your personal data being stolen, your PII, if you will, like your financial information, your credit cards, your um, banking information, but also uh, attacker motives have changed recently, and it's more common for your computer to be hijacked and used as a zombie. And what a zombie really is, is a zombie is your computer is now under the control of the attacker and is typically used to attack other computers without your knowledge. And Malware was really interesting because it's usually comprised of the typical common code that you have in your normal applications on your computer, but this is all kind of hidden and transparent to the user. So a lot of this malicious stuff that happens are going to go unbeknownst to you. And and I mean, the other thing too is it, it looks almost exactly like any normal application. Yeah, absolutely. It looks, you know, generally like exactly every other application. It doesn't make itself generally known that it's uh, there's something malicious happening. And there's different levels of malware too. So for example, we have lower level malware called adware that you may or may not have heard of where there's times when you open up your internet browser and you'll see a pop-up for like a, a shady pharmaceutical company. And that's typically very low level malware. Um, and some even don't even call it malware. They call it like a personally unwanted program or a pup. All the way to the higher stuff. The higher, more sophisticated malware, that's generally the stuff that when something malicious happens, it's completely silent and unbeknownst to the user. So very scary stuff. But I mean, the one thing that's it's important to remember about it is that it is just strings of numbers and codes, which kind of makes it hard to, I mean, you can have it on your person almost. It's, it's just like anything else that, that programmers create. It just happens to have a bad usage to it, which, I mean, that makes it kind of hard to legally go after, right? Absolutely. And, you know, things have gotten even more complex recently with 
the kind of advancements of open source software. So open source software is if I wanted to create a computer program to do anything, whether that's a cool like calculator for you to download and use or all the way to building your own personal website, I can publish that code for free on the internet for in different common sources. And that's called the open source software movement. Now, what's become popular in the last five or so years is open sourcing malware. So anybody, even those without a deep computer knowledge or deep programming knowledge can download malware for free and adjust some of the code and have that code actually go ahead and execute and run on their victims with very little knowledge. So it's it's really changed kind of how the game works nowadays where I think a lot of a lot of us in the security industry and non-security industry have this notion that malware is advanced and the people behind it are advanced and while that is true a stick has been kind of thrown in, into the spoke of of that sophistication now where you can have anybody just a single person have access to levels of software to do some high impact damage but one thing we're seeing recently is people who are malware analysts or keeping an eye on the malware game generally they're raising the flag saying this is what's going on and they're in possession of the actual code and they're getting into trouble. Well, why is that happening? You know, I think it's happening because it's very uh, very murky and gray. So for example, if you have this malicious code, you know, one of the roles that I do is I analyze and I write a lot of malicious code as well in order to understand how the attackers are changing their motives and their techniques and their tactics. That's how you have to stay ahead of the game. In order to be an effective and what we call a blue teamer, and a blue team is just a phrase that we use in information security as to say the defenders. In order to be a good defender, you need to understand how attackers think, what kind of code they use, and what tactics they use. So this also can put us into some really legal murky waters. And a lot of it has yet to be determined as well to see how this is really going to pan out. We also have uh, things called like responsible disclosure programs. Now, this isn't necessarily for malware, but this is a common program that a lot of companies kind of follow that say, if you find a security vulnerability in our software, you can report it to us responsibly and we won't take legal action against you. However, we've seen in the news for the past couple of years where that gets a little bit dicey as well, where you have legitimate security individuals that find these vulnerabilities and they report them responsibly, but companies will sometimes come back and seek punitive damages against them as if they were doing a bad thing. So the waters are very gray here, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not really sure where we're going to be trending with this. Um, hopefully, we're going to be trending in the right direction where companies and government agencies will recognize the value that malware analysts and malware um, and blue teamers uh, bring to the table and uh, kind of work together to create some sort of more of a responsible framework there. That's my hope. Because that's the thing. It's sort of like you have, you have these malware analysts like yourself who who have this code, it's almost as if you're in possession of the weapon, but you're trying to figure out how to do good things with it. And, you know, in any other, in any other crime, let's say, or in a criminal matter, it's like you can't be in possession of the guns that the, the attackers were using. That's got to be in the hands of the police. But in this case, I think the private sector is even better than the police at understanding what's going on. And in fact, you have this sort of organic community of people who are examining all this stuff, but they're getting penalized. Right, right, exactly. And that's, that's a really interesting uh, observation because I really like that analogy too about you know, the police and people trying to help out with uh, uh, you know, how you can't carry the weapon and all that. But going back to what I was saying earlier, it's this really interesting gray water where we need to come up together with either 
working with the government or private sector organizations to really kind of come together with a decent framework to help malware analysts and people trying to do the right thing, but do it responsibly. Um, now, I know there are um, certain threat intel sharing programs out there, so some of this framework has started, like ICASI and whatnot, um, where you have individuals that dissect this malware and analyze this malware, and they often take some of those outputs um, and they share them amongst the community. So another way to think about it is if you have these private detectives that are investigating a murder scene, well, they look for certain artifacts like the, you know, the murder weapon or a bloody glove or, you know, DNA here or there. And what these investigators do is they share that data with other investigators, not necessarily within their own agency. And that's how the threat intel sharing community generally works. A lot of it's very, going back to what I said earlier, very open source. Um, so there already are some decent frameworks out there. However, um, if a malware analyst gets caught with some of that source code for that malware, aka that weapon, there is some legal gray water there. So hopefully we can figure something out that's a good framework moving forward. So Tark, how do you track malware? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a lot of really interesting techniques out there. One of my favorite ways is a method called a honeypot. Now, a honeypot is a intentionally piece of vulnerable software that looks kind of like what you think it would be, like a juicy pot of honey to attract bears. And what you do is you take this honeypot, this intentionally vulnerable piece of software, and you put it on the public internet, and you make it look like a nice ripe target, and you can just sit back and watch the, uh, the attackers either automated attacks or an actual human behind the keyboard attacking your honeypot in real time and trying to exploit it. And what they often do is they, they will exploit the target, your honeypot, and they'll drop all kinds of really interesting malware samples. And those samples, it's really fascinating to sit back and see what their motives are. So for example, you know, uh, ransomware is really common to see. And you know, ransomware is where it's a piece of malware that will infect your computer, encrypt all your files so you can't use them, and then it'll proceed to ask you to pay for, usually through Bitcoin, to access those files again. So there's a financial motive there. Um, but you also see all kinds of other interesting things like a, a rat. So a rat is a remote access Trojan, and it gives the attacker the ability to remote into your computer unbeknownst to you and do different things like take screenshots of your computer, steal your passwords, take screenshots of you through your webcam, or even listen in through your microphone. So it's really interesting to kind of collect some of these samples from a honeypot. Going back also um, to what I said earlier, there's a lot of really interesting open source code repositories too, where researchers like myself and others will publish source code that they find from different malware sources. There's also kind of an underground curated market as well, where you can kind of get these malware samples in bulk. And usually they're a little bit more stale, but they're really good to analyze and kind of understand how older malware operates. And one of the interesting trends in malware is that it evolves, but not that much. So a lot of the malware that kind of worked in the early 2000s still works today and still is effective today. And then there's obviously the dark web underground uh, forums where you can actually purchase malware, usually through like sophisticated means with access already hooked into other individuals' computers um, to do whatever you want it to do. So there's a lot of really interesting avenues there. I never really kind of jump into the dark web aspect. I mainly fo focus on the, the honeypot angle. I think one thing would be good to define for our listeners is, I mean, in order for malware to work often, you need an exploit. So what's an exploit? So an exploit is 
Um, going back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about vulnerabilities. So you have a vulnerability in a piece of software. And what a vulnerability is, is that there is um, something that was unintentionally designed in a piece of software, like a weakness, if you will. And an exploit is just a, a piece of code that can be executed against that software to do something malicious. And that's generally an attacker taking over the application or taking over the computer that the application is running on. And that's an exploit. And you see that oftentimes in malware, usually more sophisticated stuff by nation states, where you'll have a, for example, a common website that people go to. It's really, uh, there's a type of attack called a watering hole attack. And inside of watering hole attacks, you'll have some sophisticated malware with exploits in it that when you visit that website, it automatically runs that exploit code and attackers can essentially take control over your computer at that point there. And so that's where we generally see exploits happening really commonly is through drive-by downloads and watering hole attacks. The way it was described to me once was it's sort of like if you have, you know, like a, a, the wall around the castle and it's, it's almost impenetrable and then you find the one little area where like the stones move inwards and then you build a way for your army to find a way in. And then once you can prove it, you send your entire army in. <laughs> right. I, I really like that analogy. Uh, and, you know, taking that and kind of going with it a little bit further too, as blue teamers, as defenders, as malware analysts, we are there to protect the castle. And if that one little piece of stone that lets the entire army in happens, our job is to go ahead and build a moat, right? We need to build like kind of a layered approach to security. But that, I love the castle analogy. It definitely, it definitely applies. What do you think of Apple's bug bounty program? Apple is going to start paying hackers to find and report. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For security holes in its products. The company also announced under the so-called bug bounty, it would pay as much as $200,000 to hackers who find the most severe bugs. I really like um, any kind of company that does uh, bug bounty programs. I think they're, that's a responsible way of outsourcing security. One of the challenges in security is being able to hire and staff and have enough resources for your product to build it securely. So this is a good way to kind of crowdsource that. So Apple does a really good job of their bug bounty program. I'm usually really in favor of all bug bounty programs, but I think Apple does a really exceptional job. A good bug bounty program will be one that's transparent, one that will tell you a good uh, you know, cost for the bugs that you find and you disclose responsibly. And it's a really effective way to kind of crowdsource vulnerability management and really crowdsourcing security. In this day and age, it gets really difficult to staff and find qualified security individuals. And this is a cool, creative way to kind of engage the community and, and get uh, better security for uh, low cost. Also, and just to be clear, bug bounty programs are when companies essentially pay for security researchers to give them vulnerabilities. And, it, you know, this whole process has been such a problem for security researchers because sometimes they'll find stuff and not want to disclose it because they don't want to get in trouble with the cops, they don't want to get sued by the company. 
But this program, and you know, I'll give, we got to give some credit to Apple. They're also paying, you know, it's like they're not giving it for 10 bucks. Significant amount of money goes to security researchers who find this stuff to ultimately secure the devices of Apple, which are widely used as we know. Absolutely, yeah. And you, everybody has to really be able to appreciate that. It really comes down to, you know, outsourcing of those resources too. So it's a, it's a net win for consumers where you have multiple eyes that are incentivized to help make the product better. It's a net win completely. And they do pay competitively as well. Google's probably the other big major contender in that space too. They do a really good job of uh, being, running their bug bounty program as well. It's become so successful as like a return on investment to businesses that we've seen establishments like HackerOne, which is a really popular organization now that companies can go to to say, hey, I want to start a bug bounty program, but I don't have the resources available to you know manage the emails that come in from security researchers, the communications that come in, and how to effectively do bug bounty the right way. So it's really exciting to see where we're at because about five years ago, a lot of this was very kind of underground and very connected oriented. So if you know somebody who works at a company, you can disclose that what you find, but there are often times where you'll send a report into a company saying, hey, I found a way to steal credit cards from a database on uh, your public facing website I just want to let you know, I'm not even necessarily seeking a financial reward, and they've been met with lawyers to seek damages against them. So we're getting better in this space, but there's still a lot of room for opportunity. So domain tools, I mean, it's, it really is an excellent resource. How does your company track all this stuff and then put this giant infrastructure together that is usable? <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, Domain Tools has been around for uh, 10 plus years, and we're a company that has always collected a lot of data on the public internet, specifically around domain names. So what we do is we have a series of different pieces of infrastructure that crawl the entire internet, and we essentially scrape and grab all kinds of data and metadata about the websites that you use every day, and we collect them And what we do is we offer a really cool service that lets you go out and map out infrastructure. And generally, we like to focus around security stuff, too. So, for example, we talk about malware, and a lot of times malware authors will write a piece of malware that involves a website or a domain. Well, what we do is our data set can help you map out um, not only the actual domain and the infrastructure being used by the attacker, but some of the associated and mapped out ones as well, too. So it's a pretty cool service that we have. Yeah, you want to tell me about Iris, the Iris tool? And by the way, I, I know this because Lorenzo is the biggest nerd in the game. He's my reporting friend and foe. I know he's going to listen to this, too. Uh, he loves the Iris tool. Tell me about the Iris tool. Yeah, so Iris is really a, it's a really neat platform, whether you use it for malware purposes or even for research purposes in general. It doesn't need to be necessarily security related, but it's a phenomenal tool where you can provide it a simple domain name or even an email address or an IP address of something that you're investigating. And it will uh, automatically map out all these connections that you didn't know existed before, whether that's like, you know, Um, the registrant email address or some of the name servers being used for the domain that you're investigating, all these multiple data points that you really didn't know were connected uh, but actually are connected. It does a lot of the the research legwork on your behalf. So I use it every day for multiple things. So, I mean, thanks very much for discussing this because I think it's important to discuss malware because 
I mean, frankly, it's just a bunch of numbers that actually happen to affect all of our lives, whether it's WannaCry or if it's Stuxnet taking down an Iranian nuclear power plant. Malware is sort of pervasive and all around us. So thanks, Tark. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you for having me aboard. So Jason, welcome back for the roundup. Let's start off with Airbnb. So uh, Joseph Cox has been doing a series of reports about the human labor behind so-called artificial intelligence and sort of this like the contractors who are working uh, sort of to like listen to Skype conversations and listen to like Xbox voice commands and all this sort of thing. And this same company is also the human labor behind this uh, company that doxes Airbnb addresses for local governments. Why would they do that? So there's a lot of people who start like illegal short-term hotel rooms in Airbnbs. But like Airbnb doesn't, like when you go to look for an Airbnb, it doesn't say what the address is. It just gives you like a rough area. So there's this company called Host Compliance that basically sells its services to local governments being like, we will find the address of all Airbnbs that are posted online. And they basically scrape Airbnb and they have these humans, these human workers who go through Facebook and like Zillow and all these other databases and are just like trying to figure out what the address is so that they can then provide the address to local governments and then the government can go, you know, find the people if they're running like an illegal Airbnb. So, yeah, that's pretty buzzkill of the week, to be honest with you. And speaking of another buzzkill of the week, uh, a site that was uh, doing a deep fake of Jordan Peterson's voice. Jordan Peterson didn't like that too much. Yeah, so notjordanpeterson.com was using a basically like deepfake AI voice simulation technology. It was pretty impressive. We wrote about this earlier this year and people were fooled by it, even though it was saying, you know, this is not Jordan Peterson. In fact, I'm a neural network. Uh, Jordan Peterson got mad about it, wrote something, uh, quote, something strange, something very strange and disturbing happened to me this week. If it was just relevant to me, it wouldn't be that important. But this is super scary and could happen to anyone. And then he spends 1,300 words writing about how uh, deep fakes must be stopped using whatever legal means are necessary. And then notjordanpeterson.com shut down. Uh, They did this voluntarily. They didn't get a legal threat, but still, it's kind of like major bummer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's also like, I don't know, famous person getting made fun of. Jordan Peterson, like, famously thin-skinned uh, Canadian academic into, like, uh, I don't know, alt-right, alt-light sort of, like, uh, thought leader. I don't know what you'd call him. But I just think it's really rich how somebody who is just kind of, like, constantly preaching that young men need to, need to, need to be uh, strong and and then free speech gets mad at this. Anyway, uh, a hacker got a zero day for Steam. Yeah, so Steam is the video game platform run by Valve. Uh, they have a bug bounty program like a lot of other people have bug bounty programs. And they run it through this site called HackerOne. 
So there was this uh, Russian security researcher named Vasily Kravitz, and he submitted a zero day that he found through HackerOne, and HackerOne and Valve were like, nah, this isn't a bug, we don't care about it. So he published it publicly. And then once he published it publicly, HackerOne banned him from the platform entirely, being like, you can't submit bugs anymore. And then he was like, hey, I found another zero day. And uh, they're like, you're banned. We don't want it. So he dropped that one publicly too, which is just like interesting because this guy tried to do the right thing by doing like responsible disclosure. And instead there was, he dropped two zero days for this like massive gaming platform that allowed uh, user escalation privileges. So it allowed anyone to get like admin access on a computer, which is obviously very bad and how you get like remote code execution and any sort of other, uh, can do anything else with it. So that's bad. Valve apologized, said it was a mistake, but like they kind of got owned. Hell hath no fury like a hacker scorned. Did uh, Shakespeare say that? He did, yeah, except it was not a hacker. So a woman accused T-Mobile that her location data was used to stalk her. I mean, this is a pretty frightening story. Yeah, all year we've been running stories about how cell phone location data is not uh, protected very well. And, you know, we have nailed this into the ground. It's like we bought cell phone location data from the black market. We then uncovered a huge network of cell phone location data that was being sold on the black market to bounty hunters that was separate from the first one. Uh, And now we found that bounty hunters have been impersonating cops to get uh, cell phone location data for specific people. So in this case, the person said that, you know, there is like a hostage situation. They told T-Mobile like, hey, we need to track this cell phone. And then that bounty hunter was tracking this woman uh, for months and stalking her. And the guy was convicted in court. He's serving a year sentence, but... This is the first uh, sort of known public uh, case of location data being used to, you know, stalk a woman. And I think that it's really important to put a human face on the fact that this is not just like bounty hunters going after criminals. This is like a woman who did nothing wrong, who uh, was just being stalked and harassed and had to move several times and had to just like had her life completely ruined and... and um, you know, this is because the telecom companies don't put the proper safeguards on their uh, location data. They just hand it out. So Time AI is this technology pitched by a company at Black Hat during a sponsored talk. So they paid like $125,000 to give a talk about something that they called Time AI encryption. Uh, do you know what that is, Ben? I don't, but just also for the uninitiated, Black Hat, massive, massive hacker conference. But tell me what this thing is. Uh, no one knows. So uh, they said, <laughs> they basically went and stood in front of... I mean, of, it sounded like something when you say it. It's yeah, no. Encrypted so, timescale? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so these guys uh, went and talked to the best cryptologists and hackers in the world about uh, their time AI unhackable encryption and everyone's like, what the fuck is this? This sounds like a scam. Uh, the math doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, Black Hat pulled the talk after the fact. Um, so they took it down off their website so you can't watch it anymore. But this company <laughs> paid Black Hat 125 k to give this speech. So Black Hat didn't properly vet them. And now the company that uh, is, is pitching 
Time AI is suing Black Hat over their talk getting taken down. So it's some like massive drama. We don't know where this is going to go, but it's like, uh, I don't know. It's the kind of drama that doesn't really have a victim other than whoever the investors in this company are. But uh, it's it's some... It's just like it's, just, where this will it's go. just more snake oil, cyber, cyber snake oil. Yeah, I mean that's what people have been calling it is is snake oil. I guess it's entirely possible that Time AI is an unhackable encryption uh, that for some reason they can't show it to anyone, and uh, they've just been collecting venture capital, and it's just like runs on technology that no one else has ever vetted. But uh, I think that's unlikely, and we'll probably not see this tech ever that's the roundup roundup. thank you thank you cyber listeners for listening to the roundup (laughs) bye this week's episode was recorded and edited by brian arnold hosted and produced by me and we will give you another podcast next week bye-bye When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.